Welcome to the Ask Brian Podcast Radio Show, where you'll hear from some of the most successful founders and CEOs of businesses and startups, sharing their best advice for success, and even some stories on how their mistakes actually make them even more successful. Now, here are your hosts, Brian and Tracy. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You're listening to the Ask Brian Radio Show on KHS. 1220 and 98.1. All right. Well, each week we're here to try to help people learn something about business, something that's new that's coming out, or an expert that can teach people something about business. Also, founders and startups, sometimes all three, sometimes different amounts. But Ask Brian has been on the air now since 2017, January. So we've been around for a while, six and a half years. And the show is called Ask Brian, A-S-K-B-R-I-E-N. And every week, people who have never listened to the show do not understand why Brian is spelled with an E. I tell people I'm not from Ireland. My last name is not O'Brien. I don't go to the O'Brien pub. And the fact of the matter is, while most people spell the name Brian, B-R-Y-A-N or B-R-I-A-N, some people do spell the name B-R-I-A-N. But there's another reason. And Tracy, my co-host, is going to try to explain why we have an E in the name S. Brian, and that's the name of our show. I must say, though, I think I think you lie when you say you don't go to the O'Brien pub because you do bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> so even though it doesn't start with an E, I think honesty is a really important part of the show. But I digress. <laughs> you certainly digress. Very good job. Where's the clap? Give me a clap. Where's the clap? Clap for di- digressing. Clap for digressing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, clapping for honesty, getting you to admit the real truth. So the E's are an exceptional part of our show. And one of the primary reasons for that is our exceptional engineer. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. (laughs) Which I have to say was such a great show last week. And if you did not catch it live, you got to listen to it on the podcast because you did such an amazing job being our impromptu guest. And it was such a good episode. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. You realize she's trying to save Grace because she forgot about you and I had to tell her about the word (laughs) empathy and engineer. So now she's trying to make up for it. We got it. No problem. Well, glad we accept. Thank you. you. I have a lot of empathy for our engineer for a lot more reasons than just that because I worked in broadcast radio for a very long time, so I understand the engineer, and I do have a for <laughs> Well, very much appreciated. Okay, no, yes, but also because of the experts that we have on the Ask Brian show, and our experts are just all amazing, and you're going to find that out with the uh, guests that we have today. Super amazing. We're going to be talking about a lot of fascinating information that you're going to be going to stick through these ease to hear. And so, yeah, so you're going to make me do the math on what qualifies you as an expert? Because I'm ready if you are. Well, we're waiting. Okay, so technically speaking, an expert requires 30 hours a week, approximately 10,000 hours over the course of five years, right? So I'm kind of backing into this in a really weird way. So I probably should just restate. 10,000 hours to be an expert, on average, that means 40 hours a week for approximately 50 weeks for five years. But you and I both know, and all of our experts can attest, 
that you don't usually work just 40 hours a week as you're as an entrepreneur starting a business and running a business. We estimate you could cut that learning curve down to about three years. And uh, so all of our experts are definitely super overqualified to be on the show. And that's what makes them so interesting. Well, that complicated analysis, I now have a brain freeze, but good job. I was just getting you teed up for an even bigger uh, brain freeze as we talk about AI and healthcare and other iterations of artificial intelligence. So, yeah. Well, that, that's, what our guest, that's what our guest is going to go for. But, you know, we do want to get to the interview. So I am going to take a little bit over in a sense of so some of the reasons why Brian has an E in it. One is E stands for education because we try to educate people. And that's the real goal here. If you can learn something from the show, then we've done our job. That's really the key. We also try to empathize with the engineer and with our guest and with everybody. Empathy is a trait that many, many people don't have, and it's a really good skill to have. And I think that it's important to understand how you fit in other, other people's shoes in a sense of, you know, what they're doing, whatever. It may sound, okay, you know, it takes two seconds to do the show. No, it doesn't. It takes a lot of effort. And so, therefore, we certainly appreciate our engineer and our co-host and myself and our guest, obviously more important than anyone because our guest is what differentiates each show each week. And we also have a lot of positive energy and your favorite E is enthusiasm! (laughs) It gets me every time. I know it's coming and it still gets me every time. So does that mean then I get to now say my favorite E? Only if I can say Grease Lightning is electrifying and we are electrifying as i'm sure everyone has already figured out <laughs> Woo-hoo. so now if our guest hasn't said what did i get myself into why am i here you know this is great but that's not going to tell me anything about what i do but here he is michael are you still around yes i'm here thanks for having me thank you man so a couple questions first of all what is the name of the company that you're currently working at cloud nine ai that sounds kind of heavenly to me. So what exactly is Cloud9? Sounds like it's up in the skies. <laughs> it is. It is. It's basically how you dream your AI could be and working for yourself. So first of all, when did the company start? 2020. And what's your prior background to be starting this company? Just a quickie. I don't need to, from when you were nine years old and selling ice cream, whatever. Give us like a quick background of your professional career, maybe over the last 10 years. Yeah, not a problem. Started my career in healthcare, uh, actually just 20 years ago in Silicon Valley. And that was kind of the premise of the company really during the Obamacare, uh, Obama administration when they launched Obamacare. We were part of the digitization teams that were required to basically deploy the enterprise applications that work between hospitals and insurance carriers. Sounds like a lot of HIPAA stuff there, trying to comply with the HIPAA regulations. And what was the name of that company? That was Excel Technology. And then did you go from there to Cloud9 or was it interim? Starting Cloud9, essentially. Yeah, that's when we started Cloud9. And did you start it yourself or did you still have other founders? There's a co-founder. We actually have eight people that are full-time. It's myself and the co-founder that started the company. And how did you come up with the concept? What said, hey, you know, we need to have this company? What was the aha moment? It began with cancer research. Actually, one of the co-founders, his wife had passed away from cancer, and then we all spent 
you know, a long weekend just saying, hey, if we're going to work on anything, what do we want to work on? And so we started reverse engineering what was kind of what were some of the problems and where it starts is, you know, protecting data. And so when we figured out that that would be the good beginning point, and then we said, okay, then we can figure out how to interoperate some of these systems. And so we thought that if we could create a framework where researchers could collaborate and share information, essentially, you know, 24-7, and then run their data models, then potentially they could find a cure for anything. And so that was the premise of the company. That's an awesome and noble premise. Unfortunately, I'm an attorney, so I have a whole bunch of questions on that area. I'm trying to figure out how you can collaborate when different people have intellectual property rights and patents and various research that they're conducting. How does that play, if you know the answer? It is a legal question. Obviously, I'm an attorney. so. Well, no. So that's a great legal question. And that's actually the first requirement. Before you can actually share and collaborate your data, you have to make sure you're meeting type of complicated requirement, legal, not only federal regulations, but also state regulations. Yeah, it's not just HIPAA, but it's Medicare, Medicaid. So exactly right. So whenever you're using AI, what happens is the architecture tokenizes the data. So whatever legal requirements that you have are part of the code. And there's a full audit trail. So you can audit the data from origination to output. And so it's an explainable AI tool. Does it search the FDA paperwork, the files of the FDA? Is that part of it? Well, yeah, of course. Well, it depends on the customer requirements. So right now, enterprises, they basically want their data protected. They don't want their data that's out there. If a client says, as a part of our internal stakeholder requirements, here's our data, but we also want you to search the data for the federal requirements, any type of HIPAA requirements. Yeah, we have it. Essentially, it's an engine. It's an engine that searches data depending on what our client requirements are. So, yes. And is there any marketplace between companies? So, for instance, let's say I'm Eli Lilly and I've got Moderna over here and we're looking for a vaccine for, I don't know, um, the widget, you know, just made up name, right? So how does that work? Is there an offer or something done between the two companies that you facilitate or is that that down the line or, or not part of your concept? Well, that is essentially, that's one of the, that's one of the requirements that we have. So, Two organizations, they've collected a ton of data. They have to meet not only U.S. requirements, but you're also talking about European requirements, GDPR. So, yes, they want to collaborate. Both of them have their own intellectual property, but they have to, but they want to be able to scrub their personal information, their intellectual property, plus they have to be able to take out any personally identifiable information. Yeah, that's all part of the algorithm. So, yes, that's essentially what we do. We do it, auto, we do it automatically. Right now, the process for companies to do that and collaborate, it's all done manually. In order for them to share data, it's all done manually. Because of the architecture, the databases that they have, they have to send it up into the cloud, scrub the data, make sure it's protected, but also share the data in different languages. But you're offering AI, correct? It's an AI tool that actually democratizes data for these organizations. So when it's scrubbing data to come up with the AI, right, how does it know if the information is confidential or not? The company would give us the requirements. It would be HIPAA. HIPAA requirements, they would let us know the personal information, any personal information tied to that data would be automatically scrubbed, removed from it. And then is it basically like the standard chat AI where I say, hey, listen, I'm looking for a cure for uh, bone marrow cancer and, and it's going to give me all the different research things through it? Or how does that work? So conceptually, yes. But when you talk about comparing it to chat, it's different. Well, one, the data that's coming back from chat is data that comes from search engines. 
Google, and Microsoft. That's only the data that's been indexed. That's only the data that's available. We're looking for the data that's not available, the data that needs to be discovered. Chat doesn't do that. And chat requires too much energy and resources. They're burning $700,000 a day, you know, on 3,000 servers, 30 cents a search. You know, enterprises can't use that. You can't put chat into a research department. You know, they need GPUs and server farms to run that. And how many locations do you guys have? We're globally. We have offices in Switzerland, Amsterdam, Montreal, and Los Angeles. That's pretty big. Now, you only, you only started in 2020. It's only in three years. That, that's a pretty big big growth rate there. What, what's the- well, it's a big problem. It's a big problem. Data, it's not just, it's not, when you mention these big companies, it's not just how long they've been around. You know, they've been around for 100 years. So, yes, they have exabytes of data. They have a huge data volume. But you also have data has just become too big, especially in healthcare. When you talk about the size of this data and actually trying to model that data into the current database architecture, it's become too complicated. And when you start in 2020, all the data that you're talking about, that's already been digitized before, before it even got involved, correct? No, it's not. Oh, no, wow. No, because some of these companies are still storing their data in Excel. Right, they're just handling data in Excel. You know, if you look at like so World Health Organization, if you look at a foreign country, they don't have the ability, you know, they're just storing data in Excel, right? So that's a problem. It is. So how do you extract the data to put it into your system? Well we we digitize it. We digitize it. And so it, like so in East Africa we have a not a big company, it's a small NGO. They have they generate maybe $20 million a year in revenue, been around for 20 years, right? The problem that they have is they have warehouses all over the country. And so by digitizing that information, you actually provide them with real-time updates, not only with the supplies that they have, but they've also collected medical devices. And they have different medical clinics. And so as they've expanded over the last 20 years, they've created you know, 26 enterprise silos that they operate in, so, all with Excel. So who is responsible for the cost of digitizing the data? Is it like that company in East Africa, or is it you or a combination? Oh, no, the company pays us. What do you, what's the question? Do you mean for-profit organization? They license us. They pay us to do that. My question was geared towards for the digitizing of all that data. If you've got hundreds of warehouses taking all that data, that's a very, very time-consuming process. Yes, and they're failing at it. They're not able to do it accurately. And so that's when they use our engine to do it because this operates 24-7. You're able to analyze billions of data points from 26 different silos simultaneously. And then on top of that, you may have language issues, right? Not every document is written in English. It could be written in French or Spanish or Swiss or whatever. That's a great point. So that's essentially one of the problems that you have in Africa because of colonization. And anytime you travel, you know, 30 kilometers in any direction, the dialect changes. So the information that they're collecting has to be localized and organized by that language. So how long a process, it sounds to me like it's still going to take many, many years. How long a process is it going to be to try to get the data digitized so that it's into a search engine? where people can actually use it, collaborate, and then come up with a cure for, you know, cancer or whatever things. It sounds to me it's a, it's a long-term project, no? 
Yeah, it'll be long-term depending on as you add additional stakeholders. But as of right now, you have enterprises that are already collecting data and working on it currently. You know, like you mentioned, the Eli Lilies that are out there, the Novartis's, the GSKs, um, all of these organizations have been participating and in, in doing research, even, you know, especially after COVID, you just saw a uptick in organizations collaborating. And so they realized that the information that they've collecting or the data that they've been collecting is information, right? They just got to digitize it. Once you digitize it, that information becomes knowledge. You just have to be able to share it. You have to have the architecture to be able to share it. And that's that's what Cloud9 does, correct? Correct. We create that framework for them. And then what are your sources of revenue? So one source of revenue would be the digitization, right? Then do you make a fee on collaboration or what are your revenue streams? Oh, we license. We have an annual license fee for enterprises, depending on the amount of data that you have. We do a data that we basically do a data assessment. Client will give us a set of requirements. They'll say we want this is an initiative that's a problem. They'll give us the requirement and then they'll receive a price for the license in order to do that, in order to automate all of it. But the digitization, is that part of it or is that a separate? Oh, no, it's all included. It's all part of it. Digitization is all part of it. The feature set, if the client tells us, this is what we want, this digitize, these are the features, this is what we wanted to do. Yeah, it's all part of it. And so in the last three years, give us a, a, a guesstimate of how much data you've actually compiled into your system through this process. Oh, no, we're talking about exabytes. Well, we get to speak with some of the largest data users on the planet. And when I mean large data users, I'm talking about people like you know, CERN, people in finance, Wall Street. So, yeah, so they have large, tremendous, and some of these companies have been around for 100 years, and they've acquired companies. Yeah, well, that makes it even more complicated when you acquire a company. And my glorious co-host, Tracy, you're around? Yes, woohoo, I'm here. Yay! She's going to. I get to pivot. I'm so excited to talk about what I want to hear and everyone is probably really curious to know is all of this amazing work that you're doing that you were talking about, that has to take a team of exceptional people to execute on, correct? Yeah, it does. It does. Give us kind of an overview of what does that look like for your team? For us, it's not, most people might think it's technical. It, it's a mix of, of a few things. We have a group of scientists like physics, PhDs. And then we also have a strong engineering team. You know, everyone, by just by default, they all have 25 to 30 years of technical expertise in coding. So everyone pretty much on the team. So walk us through from when you started the company and where you are now in terms of, you know, what size team did you start with and then where are you right now? And the reason I ask you this question to put it in context is there's so many people with startups and they're they really have a challenge in terms of payroll and getting started and what is the right number of people that you need to get things going to actually start making money. And then at what point do you realize and how do you scale by adding additional team members? Yeah, so there's, you know, a couple of threads to pull on in terms of, you know, what you asked, how we started. Well, how we started may not work for everyone else. Some companies start with as a solo founder. Based upon our technology and the landscape that we were approaching and basically the marketplace, 
we decided that we were going to be raising a venture round. And so the best way to do that, we started with a, there's a co-founder as well. We started founder and co-founder. We had a third co-founder, but he had passed away from cancer. So there's just two of us. And then after that, we basically built a technical team because anytime you're deploying a technology into enterprises, you have to have a strong technical team, not just for investors, but also for organizations. I mean, any organization that's going to give you their data or give you access to their data, they know everyone. They want to know every single person. So yeah, we're going the venture route. We basically started raising a pre-seed. Now we're raising a seed round. And then after the seed round, we'll raise a series A. And so, yeah, we have a really strong technical team. And so this is an interesting thing that doesn't come up very often. So I want to explore this a bit. So you had a third co-founder who passed away, sadly, of cancer. Were you able to work out like a legal agreement knowing that that was possible, that that was going to happen so that every the other two, you and the other founder were protected in terms of like estate terms, sale agreements, things like that? Yeah, he made it pretty easy because prior to you know, him passing, he had given legal authority to my co-founder. Yeah, I mean, and the reason I bring that up is because I actually worked for a company who the partnership did not have that in place. And one of the co-founders actually passed away suddenly of a brain aneurysm and there wasn't a BASA agreement in place. It was absolutely complete disaster. So I just want listeners and people to know that it's such an important part of organizing your company from the ground up because people are all in the place of feeling everything's great and positive and wonderful and you just never know. So that's that's amazing. You guys were able to have that all taken care of. Yeah, it's a great point. You essentially have to get legal advice from every area. We have legal advisors and IP, legal advisors for immigration legal advisors for just basic business setup. So yeah, you pretty much always have to have it, especially, you know, when you're taking, when you're raising out, when you're raising capital from outside investors, you just have a fiduciary responsibility, not only to the staff or employees that you have, but also to basically everyone, the investors as well. So all those things have to be covered, you know, accounting, all those, all those business practices and operations have to be cleaned up. It doesn't have to be all done at once. You typically, what you want to do is compartmentalize it. You know, there's a lot of things that you have to do. And you just want to focus on what's important over the next hundred days, you know, and, and just achieve, you know, certain milestones along the way. Yeah, I love what you said about the hundred days because I think that is such an important. Uh, you know, I like to use the word sprint planning because that's a little over three months, and it's really important. I think, especially when you are starting up and scaling and growing that you're managing and monitoring things on a quarterly basis. Maybe, you know, you get a lot of questions in recruiting interviews and things like, what's your five-year plan or what's your 10-year plan? But so much can happen that can shift in a 90-day window of time. Did you find that that was an effective way for you to plan? And do you still use that planning method? The first quarter or first hundred days, that was your question? Yes, of course, we still do that. I actually have to repeat that. So we have a business plan. For us, we have, you know, a five-year, 10-year business plan. You know, once you plug in $20 million into our business, we have, we know what that money is going to be earmarked for. But in the meantime, you have to have an annual plan. You know what you're going to accomplish in 2023, 2024. And sometimes on a daily basis, we get caught up in the weeds. You know, this is what we're going to do, strategizing about this. And sometimes I just have to say, listen, let's just break things down to the next 100 days. Don't get so 
overwhelmed with all of these things that might happen or all these different variables that are happening in the marketplace. Let's just say next hundred days, what are we going to do? Does anything change? Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it does. But that just kind of minimizes the focus. Yeah, absolutely. And so that was going to be my next question around that focus is like when you're looking at that 100 days, are you looking at all categories? So are you looking at finance, marketing, recruiting, tech? Are you looking at all that or do you just do sprints based on certain areas? Sprints based on certain areas of that organization where we are, it's revenue. So we focus on the 100 days that dictate revenue, dictate income. So that's what we're focused on right now. You know, um, once the revenue's in and that capital is generating, then we can we can actually shift into uh, recruiting. But I think it's going to be continuous. A lot of times it's going to be continuous. You know, days going to be split up into doing all of those things. Right, which then evolves into the question around time management. So as a co-founder, how involved are you in the day-to-day operations? Well, you have to wear quite a few hats. I mean, it's a company that, I mean, you're the co-founder of. And so you've got a great responsibility to make sure things succeed. And so everyone takes, you know, different responsibilities. You know, one side of the house is for my co-founder. One side of the house is mine. And so, yeah, you just have to keep on top of the tasks you have on hand to keep moving it forward. And just, we just keep communicating. And so, yeah, it's, you have to win every day. You know, some days are not going to be good, but you just have to win every day. Once you win every day, you just create momentum. And I think you brought up an important point, too, about roles. When you have a co-founder type situation and you're raising capital, in my experience, one of the things that investors want to know, especially in, I'm not assuming this isn't your case, but in a lot of cases, companies are like related to each other, husband, wife, siblings, something like that. And so you have the family dynamics coming into play. And I know investors like to have really clear roles established between co-founders so that it is a very direct and clear area of, of where the responsibilities lie. Yeah, you definitely want to have that ironed out, especially when you're speaking with investors. That's not one of the questions you want them to come up with. You know, you want to want that meeting. You want that coming up in your meeting. You want that actually identified. If you have an investor deck, that typically identified in your investor deck, who's got what, who has what role? Yes, I agree with you. If you can be proactive in your deck and and really showing investors that these conversations have already been had, this level of organization already exists. We know what our lanes are. We know what our roles are and how to stay in them. I think that comes across as very strong in their perspective of how well organized the company will be run. So I'd love to shift the conversation. And when you were talking through the focus on revenue, I think, once again, such an important point to point out to entrepreneurs, especially, I think, um, and this is my opinion, in the tech space, a lot of times the focus is on the technology and getting the technology out there as quickly as possible. And even in the case of building a service-based business, trying to get your systems in place before you scale. But if you don't have revenue coming in, you can't grow. So can you speak to the focus on revenue? What does that look like? Do you set goals? Do you set milestones? And do you have a person in place that focuses on business development for the company? Yes to all of those. We have to set goals and milestones and we have someone in business development. You have to. I mean, essentially, we're all wearing the hat. Anytime we speak as a founder and co-founder, we're all wearing the hat and always pitching and selling our business, whether it's to an investor 
or to the next company we're speaking to with. It's just continuous. I mean, sometimes that business development and sales process is painful, but you have to do it all the time. So we all do it. And yeah, we have milestones that we set. We have milestones for meeting with investors, meeting with clients. I mean, to us, it's you have to dictate income. Whether that income is coming from an investor or from a sale, that's what you have to sort out. You know, and that's how that's how we started the company. And that's how we were able to, you know, get revenue in the door and just keep putting that money back into the organization and continue to keep developing and building more products. That's what you do. How soon in your process or in your growth strategy did you bring on someone that, that focused on business development? Right away. <laughs> right yeah. away. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, like, I, so, yeah, but you wouldn't believe yeah. how many businesses don't do that, right? And they rely on referrals and and word of mouth, and then they're kind of in a bind when the revenues aren't there. <laughs> well, yeah, right away, and it's, there's a couple of reasons. One, are the process is long. You know, when you're dealing, it so we're dealing with enterprises, and so one, the process takes a long time. So two, you've got to train those people so that when they hit the ground running, they are ready to go. So yeah, you bring them on as soon as you can afford to. Either whether you pay them in capital or you pay them in stock. I pay people both ways. So yeah, you bring them on right away. And then when you're dealing with investors too, like, and this can be a complicated process, so we might just want a short answer versus a long answer. But as you're building your team, focusing on revenues, bringing people in, knowing that you're raising capital, how are you having conversations with people around equity and having, having skin in the game with your company? It's right up front what you're asking for. In terms of the raise, it's just up front. You know, if you're raising a million dollars and you say the company's worth 10 million, that lets the investor know that you're, they're buying 10%. Tracy, you had some questions that you were going to ask uh, Michael about contact. I do have a question, but I think you should congratulate me for what we were talking about during the break. Only if you tell people what it is because nobody's going to know. Today is my 30-year anniversary of working in broadcast radio. Yay! And she started when she was working in the in the room. Yes, I started. I started when I was five. Yes, you're absolutely right. Okay, right when the, I started to speak, and I had a microphone in my hand, and that's actually not even that far from the truth, which is kind of scary. But most importantly, it's about our guests, not about me. Okay. So this conversation has gone by so fast. It's been so compelling. I know people, our listeners and our podcast listeners down the road are going to want to be able to connect with you, maybe even an investor or two. So what is the best way to reach out and connect with you? Our contact page is great on our website, which is cloud9ai.com. And nine is spelled out. Correct. All spelled out. Okay, great. And so we want you to check out our podcast. We want you to download it, listen to it wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And that, of course, is the Ask Brian podcast, A-S-K-B-R-I-E-N. And we would super appreciate, always love those five-star reviews. But even more importantly, we would love it if you would share the podcast with your friends and network so that they can learn and grow and benefit from all of the amazing guests we have on the show like we have today. Thanks a lot. Michael, so one of the questions we have, somebody asked, how did you get your first customer? Trade show. Also, we have um, relationships with people in the business. So I came, um, I started my career in healthcare 
25 years ago. My co-founder as well started 25 years ago. So we started with the people that we knew first and just told them what we were doing. And they were once they said they were interested and we just asked, would you buy this if we built it? Yes, that's it. You just basically introduce yourself and ask. And you started out, there were three people, correct? Three founders? Or did you have any employees as well when you started? Employees as well. We had full-time and contract people. And between you and the co-founder that's still around, what is the breakdown, sales, marketing, who does what? Oh, great question. So I don't do anything technical. Anything that's related to coding and anyone that's technical, I don't make any technical decisions. My co-founder does. I handle the business side of it, legal, accounting, any of the fiduciary responsibility that it would take for like following like SEC requirements. So yeah, uh, sales, business development, the hiring, you know, that's what I'll handle and they'll handle the other portion. That's a lot. <laughs> I mean, just the legal part about it, you know, to be, we don't almost need a full-time attorney. There's just so many legal aspects to what you're doing. I know you're exactly right. And then on top of that, then you got to do all the other things, counting, HR, you know, marketing, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff there. Where are you going to be next? Are you going to, you said like a trade show is how you got started. You're going to be in another trade show anytime soon? Yes. So the healthcare trade show that's happening, HIPAA, I think that's coming up. We also have some trade shows with Collision, actually Collision that's happening in Toronto. Uh, we're guests of the Canadian government and we have an office. Our lab is located in Montreal and we have some engagements currently happening out of Montreal and East Africa. So. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we were at the AI Big Data Trade Show in Amsterdam. We had a business development team. I wasn't there, but we have people that are attending trade shows all around the country. And then in 2024, we'll actually put together more of an event schedule that people will see on our, on our website and can personally meet us. Sounds awesome. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, the show is over. You're listening to the Ask Brian Radio Show on KHS 1220 and 90.1 FM with our guest, Michael Brown, co-host Tracy. Everybody, over and out. Thank you for tuning in to the Ask Brian Radio Show. You can listen to us every Thursday on KTHS AM 1220 and FM 98.1 or via Facebook Live or anytime wherever you listen to your podcasts. Visit AskBrian.com to join the conversation and ask us your business questions and we'll answer them on our next episode. That's AskBrien.com.